Okay, we're going to start in just a few minutes. So if everybody will grab a donut or a cup of coffee or whatever it is, start moving your way in here. Those of you who are still stuck stuck in our wonderful Houston traffic, well, you'll just have to watch the video. There's people using in the back. Okay, a couple of announcements. One, uh, again, choir practice. For those who'd like to sing in the choir tonight, there will be practice at 6.30. Also, yesterday, Dan Hill. I'll have Dan stand up. Dan Hill uh, told me that the group he goes to, uh, goes with to Zambia, uh, had someone cancel. And so, they need somebody who can, this is going to be like the first couple of weeks in, in May. So if you'd be interested in going to Zambia at that time to teach at the Zambia Bible College, then contact Dan. Okay? But you'd love the doctrinal statement. It's uh, sponsored by Gospel Inc. here in the United States. You look at their statement, dispensational, conservative, they, uh, free grace. Uh, I've really enjoyed going there the past few years and teaching. And Pat and I will be there at that same time also. So if you'd like to go, very good accommodations. See me at the break. Talk to me about it. There's a number of choices of courses that you could teach at that time. But they desperately need somebody to teach for that uh, two weeks. Okay, so see him if you're interested in, um, for those who are live streaming, there may be some that are interested. He said Zambia Bible College is an accredited university there in Zambia, and this is a great opportunity. They need to have a master's degree or higher in order to teach there. Just a reminder about parking. Try to not park in front of the restaurant next door or some of the other locations so that there's room for their patrons to come and uh, easily uh, get to their their establishments. Uh, also, also, I think that's about it. As we come together today, we need to make sure that we are all prepared spiritually in order to uh, study the Word, in order to focus on our spiritual life. Anytime we study the Word, it's part of worship. We come before a holy God. And we need to be impressed by that fact that just as Isaiah recognized he was a man of unclean lips, we too have unclean lips, unclean hands, and we need to uh, make sure that we are spiritually cleansed, prepared to study the Word and to worship the Lord as we uh, open with song as well today. So we'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we just rejoice that we have the freedom to come together to worship you, freedom in this nation, because of the spiritual values of our forefathers, because of their wisdom, which we believe you provided for them, because of the way they structured this government. Father, we're so thankful that we benefit, we're blessed by association. Father, we continue to pray for our, our government, for our leaders. We pray that we might be able to carry out our spiritual lives in peace, communicating the gospel to those who need it, 
and studying your word, the whole counsel of your word that we might learn to, to glorify you and to have our thinking transformed that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. And now, Father, we pray that today as we study, as we talk, that all that we say and do will honor and glorify you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to sing hymn number 87. May Jesus Christ be praised. And Scott is going to come up and lead us, and then he is going to go from there into our morning message. You may need a magnifying glass at points to see his PowerPoint, but he's working on it.
wonderful thing to begin the day with praise to our Savior. And looking forward to a good day today of opening the Word and considering some important uh, theological and philosophical truths. And I always enjoy the fellowship here as well, so looking forward to a wonderful day. It is, it is a real honor and privilege to be able to speak at this conference with uh, like-minded friends and, and a real honor to be able to speak alongside Dr. Ross. I've used uh, his materials for years. I had to chuckle yesterday when uh, the comment was made that the first time he spoke at this conference was 1984. I won't tell you how old I was in 1984. I was alive, <laughs> but only by a couple of years. Uh, I was talking to someone last night about my age. I turned 40 in a couple of weeks, and uh, I know I look a lot younger. That's why I, I brought my 13-year-old son, so I can prove that I'm not in junior high. You know, the <clears throat> I didn't mention that last night. It's good to have uh, my son Caleb here at uh, the conference these couple of days as well, and uh, just really, really in, in enjoy our time. Uh, I highly recommend, in particular, Dr. Ross's book, Recalling the Hope of Glory. That's been mentioned a couple of times. Uh, it is the finest biblical theology of worship that, that exists. I use it regularly. I'm using it in a course this semester, uh, a wonderful, wonderful book, uh, Old and New Testament, tying in uh, theology of worship from Genesis to Revelation, and just that image, recalling the hope of glory, uh, is, is, a, is a beautiful image. The, the central thesis of Dr. Ross's book there is that what we do in corporate worship is we are, we are recalling Eden and looking forward to glory, and it's all, it's all tied in together as a, as a reenactment of our, as he's been talking about, uh, our, our relationship to God through the sacrifice of our Savior, wonderful a uh, wonderful message in that book. And then his three-volume uh, uh, commentary on the Psalms I use regularly. Just taught, just taught a, a course on the Psalms in the fall and relied heavily on, on that, uh, that trilogy. And, and so many of his commentaries, just a real honor to be able to, uh, to teach alongside him this week. I do have a, a table as well of books in, in one of the classrooms back there and encourage you to go by. A lot of the things that I'm discussing this week uh, are covered in some of the materials that I've brought. Uh, I brought all, I've got several books that I've written. I've brought all of those, uh, although I just had another book come out on Friday and I don't have copies of it yet. <laughs> uh, so that, that's, that's a book uh, titled Draw Near, The Heart of Communion with God with Wippenstock. And uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a devotional book on our communion with, with God through Christ. And uh, it's available on, on Wippenstock's uh, website and Amazon, those sorts of places. But I unfortunately don't have any copies of that. But I do have copies of, of some of my other books and some other materials as well. Uh, and, and along the way, I want to, you know, we, we can only cover so much in, in, in these, uh, these sessions. So I do want to point you to other resources that dive even deeper into some of the topics that I'll be covering. This morning, this topic of, of conservative Christianity, I want to spend a little bit of time unpacking uh, what, it, what it truly means to be biblically conservative. But I do want to point you to two resources that are on the table that, that dive into this at more depth. Uh, the first is a little book called A Conservative Christian Declaration. A number of years ago, I and, and uh, some of the other authors that contribute to religiousaffections.org, uh, we, we wanted to put into print in a very simple way some of the things that I'm going to be talking about this morning, and that is the essential core of what it means to be a truly biblically conservative Christian. And so we, we created a declaration that includes 15 articles of affirmation and denial 
denial, and as and then uh, uh, chapters on each of the articles that further explains sort of the core essence of what we're talking about. So a lot of what I'm going to I'm going to deal with in this session uh, is, is further elaborated in this book, a conservative Christian declaration. And then one of the individuals, one of the men uh, that contributed to that book, David DeBrain, uh, is a pastor in South Africa uh, and and a, a real articulate communicator. And he, we, we published a book by David, The Conservative Church, that again dives into some of these issues of conservative Christianity at, at more length. And just a really helpful book laying both a biblical theological uh, foundation for conservative Christianity, be also very practical. Some of you, uh, even in the Q and A yesterday, and then in private conversation, have said, "How do we turn the tide? How do we communicate some of these things to our people?" David has done a wonderful job of articulating just practically what we need to do in our churches to communicate some of these ideas of conservative Christianity. So that's a book I would highly highly recommend as well. The the the, the term conservative. Uh, is an interesting term because uh, on one hand, we're seeing a bit of a resurgence amongst evangelical Christianities in, in desiring to truly conserve biblical Christianity. I think there are some positive things happening in some circles within evangelical Christianity with a desire to recover some lost doctrines that perhaps have, have fallen by the wayside in our churches. Uh, there's an emphasis on biblical orthodoxy, including the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture, penal substitution, the omniscience of God that has come, un, uh, come under attack, and even other other matters like expository preaching. Even even um, uh, you'll, you'll hear many who are starting to uh, starting to reject a pragmatic methodology within churches, uh, upholding complementary gender roles within the church and family. A lot a lot of good things in terms of doctrine and even morality that are happening amongst self-ascribed conservative evangelicals. But on the other hand, what I think is important to recognize is that absent, notably absent, from these calls to reclaim conservative Christianity among some of these groups is any statement or focus concerning a philosophy of culture or a, a philosophy of worship. The idea seems to be that doctrine matters, amen, I'm right with them on that, morality matters, amen, but when it comes to issues of culture and worship, these are neutral. These, these, are, these are flexible, there are no absolutes, there are no biblical standards when it comes to our theology of worship, and, and in particular, the way that we integrate the cultural aspects of of our corporate worship, music and, and other things. There's a strong emphasis on being together for the gospel and emphasizing strong doctrinal commitments. And yet when it comes to issues of beauty, uh, worship, well, these are, according to many, not gospel issues. We need to be concerned only with gospel issues. We are supposed to be gospel-centered, and so anything in this view that, go, that, that, that is seen to go beyond the gospel should not be a measure of, of fellowship, should not be an issue that we, give, uh, that we give any attention to. And so to be conservative in, in that way of thinking is limited only to theological and moral fidelity to Scripture, which again, I'm, I'm with them on that. 
but it's only theological fidelity to Scripture, only moral fidelity to Scripture. Many would call themselves conservative evangelicals, meaning they believe in the the inerrancy of Scripture, the virgin birth, substitutionary atonement, and, and these sorts of doctrines. But when it comes to culture and worship, to be conservative in this view is to go beyond Scripture. So one, one example of this, uh, um, the, the well-known pastor Mark Driscoll, he used to, used to pastor in Seattle, now I think is in Phoenix, uh, years ago proudly claimed to be theologically conservative and culturally liberal. I mean, he just came right out and said it. And while others might not put it quite so bluntly, they would really affirm that underlying sentiment. We want to be theologically conservative, morally conservative, but when it comes to culture, when it comes to worship, we're, we're actually liberal in that, in that respect. And, and one, of the, one of the reasons I think most often cited for rejecting a, what, and I'm going I'm to explain what I mean here in a moment, but a conservative philosophy of culture and worship, one of the reasons given for rejecting that is evangelism. And again, I'm, I'm, I appreciate the, the emphasis and the sentiment. But the idea is we need to contextualize God's truth into the culture of our target demographic in order to reach them with the gospel. And so we're faithful to scriptural, Scripture doctrinally, but the cultural forms that we use to communicate the truth are neutral The cultural forms are entirely flexible, and we need to therefore contextualize absolute truth into neutral cultural forms that will be able to reach the people that we are attempting to reach. And this is often taken a a step further with the claim then that Christians must be free to worship using the artistic expressions of the surrounding culture, which, which again are neutral, considered to be neutral, in order to be authentic. So we need to be able to reach the culture by contextualizing the truth. And then even believers, since we are part of the culture, in order to be able to worship authentically, we need to be able to worship in, in expressions that are just natural and, and naturally a part of, of the neutral culture around us. That's the idea. And I'm going to unpack that a little bit more in a moment. But, but, the, but the question I want to, to spend a few moments on this morning is this. What does it really mean to preserve biblical Christianity? Is it just preserving truth and preserving morality? Or do we also need to give consideration to cultural aesthetic issues? And and these are issues that directly relate to our worship. What, What are we really conserving? Is being conservative only about preserving particular theological propositions? Or is there more to it? Are culture and aesthetics really irrelevant to what we are trying to conserve? That's the question before us this, mo- this, this morning. What, is it, what does it mean to truly conserve biblical Christianity? Well, as I, I've thought about this idea, I really see con, conservative Christianity as having two essential pillars, and that's what I want to unpack for a few moments. Two essential pillars, and then I want to get into some application of that, and that's where I have, I'm have. i going to hold off on the, the slides here for a few moments to where we get into the application. But first of all, these two sort of core principles of conservative Christianity. The first is this. 
The first pillar to conservative Christianity is that there exists in God absolute truth, absolute goodness, and absolute beauty. In the nature and person of God, there exists absolutes. Sometimes these are called transcendentals, truth, goodness, and beauty. Philosophically, we would call this Christian realism, the idea that there really is absolute truth, that there really is absolute goodness, that there really is absolute beauty. And philosophical realism has a long history, but where Christian realism differs from, say, Greek realism, is the belief that these absolutes, truth, goodness, and beauty, are rooted in God himself. They exist because they are in God. These principles are uh, are, are, are revealed to us in creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth, shows his handiwork. They are revealed in our consciences in just the, the fact that we are created in the image of God. Romans chapter 1 teaches that, that God is known clearly in what, he, in what he has made. And of course, they are revealed most perfectly in the written word of God. So I want to unpack that for a few moments. Where, where, where do we get this idea as Christians that these transcendent principles are, are real, that they exist, that they are absolute? Well, again, belief in these transcendent principles is rooted in the conviction that God is the source, sustainer, and end of all things. If we truly believe that God is the source and sustainer and end, then we have to affirm that all things come from him. Everything that is true is so because God is true. Everything that is good is so because God is good. And everything that is beautiful is so because God is ultimate beauty. Everything comes and is sourced in God himself, in God's character, in God's nature. There, there, there is no such thing, there are no such thing as brute facts apart from God. Things are facts, things are truth, because God has determined them to be so as they reflect and relate to his character and nature. In the same way, moral standards are not merely conceived out of convention. It's not that people just get together and decide what is morally good. No, moral standards are rooted in the nature and act of God himself. Actions are moral or immoral based on how they compare to the moral character of God. And in the same way, beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Something is beautiful because it reflects God's own beauty. Just like truth is absolute because God is the source, sustainer, and end of all things, and morality is absolute because God is the source, sustainer, and end of all things, so beauty is what it is. It is absolute because God is the source, sustainer, and end of all beauty. And so with this, with, with this in mind, we as Christians... As image bearers of God must be committed to thinking God's thoughts after him, to believing those things that are really true based on God's character and nature, to behaving in certain ways that conform to God's moral will, and 
to loving those things that God calls lovely, to delighting in those things that are beautiful as they relate to the beauty of God. And so conservative Christians, what I'm suggesting here is that truly conservative Christians are therefore concerned with orthodoxy, right truth, orthopraxy, right behavior. Okay, Thus far, conservative evangelicals were on the same page. But I want to insist that there's a third category. Conservative Christians must also be concerned with orthopathy, right loving. Right believing, right living, right loving. Truth, goodness, and beauty. All three of these transcendents rooted in the nature and character of God are absolute. And so as Christians, our responsibility is to be faithful in communicating what is consistent to God's reality. We need to be faithful to God's truth, faithful to God's goodness, and faithful to God's beauty. And so truth, goodness, and beauty are, are absolute because they are rooted in the nature and character of God. And as I, as I mentioned earlier, Psalm 19, Romans chapter 1, teach that these things are clearly perceived in what God has made. They are evident in creation. But they are most perfectly expressed in the holy, inspired, inerrant, fully sufficient, and authoritative word of God. I'm going to suggest this morning that conservative Christians believe that there is absolute truth, goodness, and beauty rooted in the nature and character of God, but also that Scripture itself communicates absolute truth, goodness, and beauty. And again, I think we all would just immediately have a gut instinct of saying, amen, we agree with that. But here's the point I want to push I want to push a little further to conservative evangelicals. Scripture communicates absolute truth, goodness and beauty not just discursively but also aesthetically. Scripture presents truth, goodness and beauty not just in what it says, although it does, but also in how it says it. That's the aesthetic side. Scripture communicates absolute truth, goodness, and beauty through its content, but also through its forms. That's that's the cultural aesthetic element that is often missed. And even for those of us who place a really strong emphasis on biblical teaching, on exposition of Scripture, I think sometimes we we really want to get to the theological propositions, which we absolutely must, and and, and there's absolute value of, of that. But we often miss the aesthetic communication side of how Scripture is expressing the truth through through the literary forms and devices of Scripture. What is important, what is communicated through Scripture is not just a what, but also a how. Truth and morality are communicated through Scripture by means of aesthetic forms, imagery, literary genre, poetry, narrative, and we could go on and on. And, and, and this very belief is rooted in the doctrine of verbal plenary inspiration. Right? We, believe, we who believe in ver- verbal plenary inspiration, we believe that, it, that it's not just the ideas of Scripture that are inspired, right? No, the very words of Scripture are inspired in their entirety. 
And, and the words are inspired. The way those words are put into phrases is inspired. The way that those phrases are combined into sentences and paragraphs is inspired. And then by extension, the way that those words and phrases and sentences and paragraphs are organized into various literary forms within Scripture, that is also inspired. The Holy Spirit of God inspired every word in the original autographs of Scripture, and this implies that the word choices, the imagery, the grammar, the syntax, the poetic language, and the literary forms were all Certainly products of the human author's writing style and culture and experiences, but we also must affirm that these aspects of Scripture, the aesthetic aspects of Scripture, are exactly how God desired his truth to be communicated. That, that's the implication of verbal plenary inspiration. Kevin Van Hooser is helpful here. He says this, It has been said that poetry this is a common definition of poetry, is the best words in the best order. Similarly, because we are dealing with the Bible as God's word, we have good reason to believe that the biblical words are the right words in the right order. I think sometimes we we wish we could wade through the aesthetic elements of Scripture and just just get to the truth. Those, those cultural aesthetic uh, uh, aspects of the Bible, they kind of just get in the way of us getting to the real heart of Scripture. No. God chose to communicate His truth through various aesthetic forms for a reason, and we need to learn something from that. We who hold to verbal plenary inspiration rightly insist that the words that biblical authors chose are important, as are how those words are, are put into sentences and paragraphs and literary forms, and therefore how we interpret the meaning of biblical passages is directly dependent upon our understanding of the historical, grammatical, and cultural context. They, that contributes to our understanding of the truth. And so verbal plenary inspiration requires that we, that we understand the nature of what is communicated through Scripture. And the nature is that it is more than just doctrinal statements condensed, condensed from God's Word. God's truth is more than just pulling out doctrinal statements from Scripture. Now, it's no less than that. But it is more than that. Rather, truth includes, beyond just doctrinal statements, truth in- includes particular sentiments, particular affections, particular moods, particular imaginations of God's truth that God communicates through the aesthetic forms that he has inspired. Again, I think sometimes, even for those of us who place a high emphasis on doctrine and and exposition of Scripture, sometimes we feel like we need to kind of get get the cultural aesthetic aspects out of the way and just consolidate truth into into concise doctrinal statements, and that's enough. I'm not minimizing doctrinal propositions. God's truth is no less than doctrinal propositions, but it is more than that. It includes particular ways of, of communicating those doctrines. And that's aesthetics. That's the function of culture. You know, any good text 
or, or seminary course on biblical interpretation gives some attention to the fact that Bible comes in various literary forms, right? Any good book on hermeneutics, any good class on hermeneutics is going gonna, is gonna to give lip service to the idea that Scripture comes in, in various literary forms, right? But while we often give lip service to the aesthetic aspects of Scripture, we, we, we often just sort of glide over it. Yeah, it's there. We need to recognize the, the literary forms, but, but we really need to get kind of through that to get to the truth. We need to get to the, the important propositional content. We need, we need to get through that in order to get to the, re, the revelatory content of Scripture. And so with this view, understanding what the literary form communicated to the original audience is important for interpretation, but not much more. We kind of have to know what it originally meant, but then we can kind of set it aside and just summarize things in, in, in doctrinal propositions. The aesthetic forms often even don't influence the way that Scripture is read or preached. And again, I want to push back on us here. We who place an emphasis on expositional preaching, I, I think, I think it's, it's, it's a mistake when every sermon, regardless of the text, is structured as if the text was a Pauline epistle. If you're preaching a Pauline epistle, then your sermon should reflect that. But if you're preaching narrative, your sermon probably should take a little different form. If you're preaching poetry, your sermon should probably take a little different form. I think it's unfortunate that, that many pastors today have little, if any, appreciation for poetry or aesthetics or music or knowledge of how arts work. Few, if any, seminary courses or resources made available to educate pastors deal with these sorts of skills. And yet the Bible is filled with aesthetic forms. We need to know how to interpret these. Let me, let me just give you a, a, a couple of illustrations of this. A, a number of years ago, a friend of mine was talking to a respected seminary professor. And this seminary professor said he really didn't have any, any room in his thinking for appreciating poetry or music. And this was a seminary professor, one of whose expertise was exposition of the Psalms. And he approached it as if he was interpreting Pauline, the Pauline epistles. The poetry, the aesthetics, the imagery, we just got to get that out of the way and get to the, get to the kernel of truth. Now, there is a kernel of truth there. Right? Postmodernism emphasizes culture and aesthetics as a way to say everything is relative. And that's a problem. But modernism has just as significant a problem as, as a problem in that we don't recognize what aesthetics is doing. We're concerned simply with the what of biblical content, not concerned with the how that content is expressed. Or here's another illustration of how, how this expresses itself within people like us who really place an emphasis, rightly so, on biblical doctrine, on biblical exegesis. We want to make sure that what we are saying and what we are singing is accurate and faithful to Scripture. Amen. But, he, but here's the problem that, that creeps in when we fail to recognize the aesthetic aspects of how truth is communicated. I, I, know, I know well-meaning pastors 
who, who look at some hymns, for example, and again, out of a noble desire to be biblically accurate, nevertheless fail to recognize what is being poetically expressed through the hymns. We, we sang an example of this last night. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Is there really a fountain? I mean, did, 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 did God like stick a needle in Jesus and then fill this fountain with his blood? Well, no. And, and you see, sometimes well-meaning people who are, really in, who are really rightly concerned with being biblically accurate might be tempted to say, well, I'm not going to sing that because it's, that's, that's not accurate. There, not, there really isn't a fountain. But, but folks, that's poetry. And even more than that, the Bible itself uses that image of the fountain flowing uh, of Jesus' blood. It, it's symbolism. It's metaphor. It's not, it's not meant to be a, 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 a factually uh, uh, accurate propositional doctrinal statement. No, it's imagery. Or there's a, there's a, a, a Christmas carol by Christina Rossetti, In the Bleak Midwinter. Frosty wind made moan, and there's this imagery of, of Christ being born in the winter. And I, I've heard pe- some people say, well, Christ wasn't really born in the winter. There really wasn't snow and ice on the ground, so we shouldn't sing that song. But, but we're missing what Rossetti was trying to communicate. She wasn't saying it was literally icy and wintry when Jesus was born. She is picturing the cold, hard condition of humanity in its sin into which Jesus Christ broke. You see, if we approach the aesthetic elements of our worship as if we're just, you know, sometimes I think we, 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 we wish we just had doctrinal statements that rhymed and are set to music. No, there's a reason we sing, and it goes beyond just affirming like propositions. Doctrinal statements are important. We ha- we, I'm not, again, I hope you understand, I'm not minimizing doctrinal propositions. But the aesthetic ways in which we communicate truth is affecting our hearts, is affecting our image of God, our moral imagination, our worldview, how we come to approach and love and value these truths. Again, what, what this sort of approach, which again is, I, I think, very common for, for those of us really concerned with biblical doctrine and very common for those who consider themselves conservative evangelicals, what this betrays is a modernistic understanding of the nature of truth and human knowing and really, in effect, denies the, uh, the authority of God's word. As Kevin Van Hooser, again, I think correctly says, evangelicals have been quick to decry the influence of modernism on liberal theology, but not see the beam of modern epistemology in their own eye. In, their own eye. in other words, we recognize the problem with modernism and its influence on, on truth. But we fail to recognize that it is, it is in some ways influenced the way that even we approach our understanding of how we come to know the truth. And God has chosen to communicate truth and to lead us into knowledge of the truth through aesthetic forms. Leland Reichand uh, says something similar. He says, It is one thing to recognize that parts of the Bible are literature, 
It is quite another to actually approach those texts in a literary manner, to get at the heart of not just what they are communicating, but how they are communicating the truth. Everything that is communicated in Scripture is communicated through the forms in which it is embodied. It's, it's important to recognize that the truth of Scripture is more than just merely scientific fact statements. No, there are scientific fact statements that are, that are real and true about, about what we believe as Christians, but it is more than that. Much of the content of Scripture is communicated through these aesthetic forms. And why, why, why is that the case? Well, well, because God wants us to know him, but he is, but he is so far above us. He is, he is so unknowable in, to a certain extent that he has to communicate himself through these, these various images that are meant to, yes, communicate truth to our minds, but also to shape and mold our conception of him, our affections for him, our imagination of what he is. As one author says, truth and beauty are in the scriptures as indeed they must always be an inseparable unity. And so to reduce God's truth to just some doctrinal statements without recognizing the way that God has chosen to communicate his truth to us through Scripture itself is insufficient. I mean, there's, there's a reason the Bible calls God a king, uses that image, rather than simply asserting the doctrinal fact of his rulership. Scripture could, could just say, God is the sovereign ruler over all things, and it does sometimes. But sometimes it says, God is a king. It uses that image in order to shape our minds and our hearts. There's a reason the Bible calls God a shepherd, a fortress, a father, a husband, and a potter. Is he literally those things? No, those are images. Those are aesthetic forms. Those are cultural expressions meant to shape both our minds and our hearts. They communicate, they communicate something to our, to our imagination of who God is. The point is that the Bible itself uses forms of beauty to express God's truth and God's moral standards in a way that accurately shapes the way that we perceive the truth. It pre-interprets the truth for us. Again, most, most true Christians, I think, desire to pre- preserve God's truth. Conservative evangelicals desire to preserve God's moral standards, but where truly conservative Christianity goes a step further is to also commit to preserving the way in which the Bible expresses truth and moral standards. That's the key. We're not just wading through the aesthetics to get to the core kernel of truth and that's what we preserve and the aesthetics doesn't matter. No. We need to recognize the way in which God chose to communicate his truth so that the way that we communicate God's truth is faithful to that. So the the first pillar of conservative Christianity I'm suggesting 
is an affirmation that there exists absolute truth, absolute goodness, absolute beauty. They are rooted in and sourced in and sustained by the nature and character of God, and they are communicated in and through the word of God. They are communicated not just in the discursive propositions, although they are, but also in how those truths are communicated through the various literary devices, poetry, narrative, imagery, and literary forms. But the second pillar then is this. A second pillar of conservative Christianity recognizes that some forms of expression better communicate transcendent truth, goodness, and beauty than others. Some of the ways that we choose to communicate God's truth, to communicate God's goodness, to communicate God's beauty, are more faithful to how God chose to do it than others. And again, if we are concerned to faithfully communicate meaning consistent with God's reality, meaning consistent with God's truth, goodness, and beauty, then then conservative Christians will be concerned with what cultural forms we choose to employ in the communication of truth, goodness, and beauty. What art forms are chosen to express God's truth in corporate worship and even outside or in other contexts? What art forms we choose are of utmost importance since they express not just theological facts, but those facts already interpreted in certain ways through the art form. What's at stake here is the very knowledge and worship of God. If works of art express particular interpretations of the truth, particular ways of imagining God, then it is then it is quite possible to express through art an imagination of God that does not correspond to how he chose to communicate his truth in his word. Again, m- most evangelicals today view cultural forms as simply pretty packaging for truth. What's important is the truth, and we just put any old cultural form with the truth, and it's just a way to maybe energize the truth, make us excited about the truth. Worship music, for example, is just a way to make truth more interesting or maybe to make us engaged in worship. But here's the point. Imaginative forms, cultural forms, aesthetic forms are not incidental to truth. They are essential to truth expressly because they are fundamental to the way that Scripture presents truth. And so art forms help us to express the imaginative aspects of truth in ways that that, that Scripture itself does. They communicate not just the what of biblical content, but also the how that biblical content is expressed. And so the kinds of imaginative forms that God chose to communicate his truth, the literary genre, the imagery, should shape our cultural forms, should influence and impact and regulate the kinds of forms that we choose to communicate God's truth. Choices of what cultural forms we will use to communicate God's truth and worship him are not merely about what is pleasing or authentic or engaging. What forms that we choose for our worship must be based on the criterion of whether they are true. 
whether they correspond to God's reality as he has communicated it in his word. And so conservative worship is essentially a desire to preserve the kinds of aesthetic forms that God chose in his word in what we do in our worship. And this means that we will be interested in preserving and using certain cultural forms to the exclusion of others. And that, that, that might, might seem to be elitist. Are you saying some culture is better than others? Yes, I am. Unlike those who, are, are, who adopt a, a more progressive philosophy of culture, we need to affirm that culture is not neutral. It communicates something. Cult- culture is, is, is connected with belief. It is connected with value. It is the way in which we communicate God's truth. All of the various cultural institutions and forms and aesthetic expressions and media and language and systems of thought are what they are because they were shaped and molded within certain value systems for the purpose of communicating those values. And this understanding is no more important than when we attempt to preserve the absolute transcendent values of God's nature and character. We we have been given a truth deposit to protect. And remember, truth is more than just some doctrinal statements. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. It is our responsibility to preserve those truths and to communicate those truths to others. And the way in which we will accomplish that goal is by fostering and choosing certain cultural ways, certain aesthetic ways of expressing those truths. Now, of course, where the rubber meets the road is how we do this. Because I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we can only express God's truth in the very words and forms that Scripture does. All right, this, this is what differentiates Christianity from Islam, for example. In Islam, you, have, you, have, you, you can't translate it. You can't translate the, the holy texts. Christianity is always affirmed we may translate we may translate from the, the Hebrew and the Aramaic and the Greek into English or Portuguese or Spanish or French or German or whatever language. But here's the important point. We all recognize this with regard to translation. When we translate, the new form in which we express the truth has to correspond as closely as possible to the original Hebrew, Aramaic, Aramaic and Greek, right? But the same is true when we choose new cultural forms, new aesthetic expressions. I do believe that in any civilization, different time periods, different societies, we can choose to communicate God's truth in corporate worship and other contexts in new ways. We can, in that sense, translate the truth of Scripture into new cultural aesthetic forms. But when we do so, we must be certain that we are faithful in not just what we are communicating, but also in how we are communicating God's truth through our cultural forms. So in other words, what I'm suggesting is that a truly conservative Christian will concern himself with preserving both what the Bible teaches and how the Bible communicates it. The what 
and the how. And so how do we do that? Well, again, I think we can, we can put God's truth in our own words. We may, put, we, we may put his truth, and we know this, we do this when we preach, right? We, we, when we teach, when we preach, when we formulate doctrinal statements and confessions, we, we are in essence taking God's truth and we are putting it in our own words. But we also need to do that when it comes to the cultural aesthetic forms that we choose. We can put it in our own words, we can, we can choose our own forms, but they have to be faithful to the forms of Scripture. That's true for creeds and confessions and, and preaching and exposition, and it is, it is true of the lyrics of our hymns that are meant to express God's truth, but it is also true of the cultural forms that we, that we choose. Now, here's, here's one when I want to develop a, a couple thoughts by, by some theologians that are helpful, because how, how do we do that then? Well, well, two, two different theologians. I've, I've already quoted Kevin Van Hooser and then Nicholas Voltersdorp. I don't, they, have, they have definitely have some problems in some of what, they, what, what they've written. But they both use this phrase uh, or this word, fittingness, which I think is a really helpful word. In other words, the aesthetic cultural forms that we use in our context in the 21st century to communicate God's truth need to fit with God's truth, need to fit, need to match, need to correspond to how God has chosen uh, has chosen to communicate His truth. And so here here's an illustration uh, that that uh, well let me read this quote first from from Voltersdorf, then use the illustration that he uses. He says he 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 he's pointing out this this fittingness, and and then and then he he says to what extent is the is the perception of this fittingness? He uses this this large word cross modal similarities. All, all he means there is that is that there are, there are similarities, for example, between um, literary forms and musical forms. So the so we need we need to we need to interpret the literary forms of scripture, determine what they mean, what is being expressed through those aesthetic forms, and then when we choose something that that in some senses is different, music, we need to ask, okay, what is similar so that we can make sure that we are being faithful to scripture. And he points out that these sorts of what he calls cross-modal similarities that people make are really cross-cultural. They're massively cross-cultural. He says the agreement is not total, but then neither is the statement total within, within, within a culture or in many intramodal similarities. And there's going to be differences. But, but when the rubber meets the road, our ability to discern similarities between what, what, what one form communicates and what the other is actually pretty natural. It's pretty intuitive. Let me, let me show you one example of this. Um, let me fast forward here. Okay. You can't see that real well because it's red. All right, there's there's a jagged line and a squiggly line. All right, so so my my problem is not only small font; it's also the wrong color. Okay, so so he's, he uses this example. Okay, you have a jagged line, and you have a and you have a squiggly line. So if I were to give you two words, I want you to think which word fits better with with one line or the other. Okay, these these are two completely different things: a line and a word. We, would, we wouldn't imagine those to fit, okay? But here, 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 are, here are two words, restlessness 
and tranquility. Which word fits with the jagged line and which word fits with the smooth line? Right? I think we all probably, unless you're a little weird, no. Uh, I think we all would say, well, restlessness fits better with the jagged line. Tranquility fits better with the curvy line. Okay, here, here's the point of this illustration. Wolchersdorf takes this from a study that was done cross-cultural. And I don't care what your age is, what your gender is, what your culture is, what your demographic is, whether you're rich or poor, male or female, young or old, almost everyone said tranquility fits with the curvy line, restlessness fits with the jaggy line. Now, here's the thing. Can you explain to me why that's the case? Well, we maybe can start to try to explain it. But it's, it's intuitive, right? And his point is, this is, how, this is how aesthetic form works. We, haven't, we don't have any music in here. So someone might say, well, there's no way we can determine what music is going to best communicate God's truth. But what Voltersdorf is saying, yes, you can. You, you can determine cross-modal similarities. You understand what he means by that now? We can look at the way that God has chosen to communicate his truth in literary forms, and we can fairly accurately determine, all right, what musical forms best fit with the literary way that God has chosen to communicate this truth in a similar way to, to this example. Here's another example that he uses, and maybe my font will get me in trouble here. All right, so here's two words, ping and pong. This is, this is a good illustration, okay? Uh, again, this was a study done cross-culturally, and, the, and, and uh, a pair of words was given, and people were asked to put one word in one column and one word in the other. And with a high degree of accuracy, almost everyone put the words in the right columns. Words like light and heavy. Almost everyone said light fits better with ping and Heavy fits better with pong. Just because of the sounds of the words, right? Now we're, now we're getting close to music. Sound. Ping, pong. Light, heavy. Is ping really light? No. Is pong really heavy? No. But intuitively, we recognize cross-modal similarity. Or small and large. Or ice cream and warm pea soup. What does ice cream have to do with ping or warm pea soup have to do with pong? Nothing on the surface, but everybody categorized it this way. A pretty girl or a chubby girl. A trumpet sound or a cello sound. Mozart's music or Beethoven's music, right? The point, and this was cross-cultural, that's his point. We can recognize these similarities with regard to emotional expression. I mean, this is, you know, if you describe music, what's really interesting is we often describe music using terms that are actually not musical terms. They're actually cross-modal terms. Like sometimes we describe some music as dark and some music as light. Is music really light or dark? No. But we recognize that kind of similarity. We all recognize the difference between majestic music or melancholy music or happy music or trite music or music that has depth. We all recognize that. And so the point is, the point that, 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 that these men are making, that I'm making this morning, is that we, that we need to 
discern not just correct doctrinal statements from Scripture. Again, not minimizing that. We've got to do that. But we need to go a step further to determine how the Bible expresses those doctrines. And then take that extra step of determining those cross-modal similarities with things like music. What kind of music is going to best be faithful in its expression of, the, uh, of a truth like the sovereign rule of God or the love of Christ as he sacrificed himself for us or we could go to any, any number of truths. And so what, what does this require then? Well, it requires that biblical interpreters, pastors, church musicians have both a thorough understanding of what various art forms communicate in Scripture, or at least be equipped with the resources to help us do that, and a thorough understanding of the art forms in our current culture so that we can rightly determine the cross-modal similarities. And unfortunately, that's, that's no longer the case. It used to be that men training for ministry would be trained in basic musical skills, basic skills of discerning meaning in cultural forms. I mean, Martin Luther said he wouldn't ordain a man to ministry who didn't understand music because he recognized the power of music. This, this used to be part of just normal grade school education. Not only is it not part of grade school education anymore, it's not part of how pastors are trained. I mean, seminaries today, we, we expect our graduates to have a thorough grasp of the grammar and historical context of Scripture. That's important for our understanding. That's important if we want to correctly interpret, explain, and translate, and even apply the Scriptures to contemporary Christianity. Why do we not also expect our pastors and Bible scholars to understand the aesthetics of Scripture? We need to be able to parse the meaning of Scripture and parse the meaning of culture and then match the fittingness thereof. And I mean more than just a cursory discussion of how to preach various literary genres, biblical genres. I mean giving careful consideration to what the Bible's poetic forms, narrative structures, literary devices, and rhetorical strategies mean. How do they interpret and communicate the truth? Now, this, this just scratches the surface of what I think needs to be a, a, a really continued discussion. We need to give consideration to this. And there are, there are some scholars who are beginning to do this. Again, I don't agree with them on everything, but Kevin Van Hooser, Leland Riken, Tremper Longman on the Psalms, Dr. Ross has, has good discussion in his, in his books, uh, uh, Abraham Kurevia. Uh, others are asking these questions, I think, helpfully. But we need to give more consideration to this. What does what what does the what how does the Bible how does God choose to communicate his truth in the literary forms of Scripture? And then how can we make sure the way that we are communicating truth in our aesthetic forms, how can we make sure that it is fitting? It's not just neutral, it's not just for our pleasure, it is actually communicate something. And let's make sure that what we are communicating is not just faithful to Scripture in what we are saying but is also faithful to Scripture in how we are saying it. And that is what culture and aesthetics does. 
All right, we've got uh, some some good time for some some questions here. I know this is going to open a lot of uh, a lot of questions. About twenty minutes or so here. So what what questions do you have? Uh, what uh, how can we clarify some of this for you? I have a question. Yes, sir. Because my telescope didn't work very well. On, I, I thought it, you said it had Malcolm Muggeridge up there, and it was Nicholas Walterstorff. <laughs> so that's how bad it is. Uh, but what book was that that you've been quoting him from? Art in Action. Art in Action. Again, he, ha- he has some serious theological problems. but Identify I'm, those for us. Uh, well, he, I mean, he's just recently come out in defense of, I think, uh, gay marriage, for instance. Yeah. Okay. But on this issue, on cultural forms, he's really And wh- where is he teaching? Is he still in Notre Dame? He might be. I, he might be retired now. But okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But on, but on this, he's good. Same with Kevin Van Hooser. I don't agree with him on everything, but he's really good on this issue of literary forms in Scripture. Leland Riken, others. Uh, so on, on those aspects, they're they're very helpful. Okay. If you were here last year, listening to Mark McGinnis, okay, does some of this sound familiar to some of the things that he was teaching about the different forms and everything? In uh, in scripture, and he was he was quoting a lot from Riken and from some others, and dealing with with the Psalms and dealing with how to how to teach different kinds of literature, great, and and read it and everything, so yep. that really dovetails together. So, Fantastic. if this is kind of a new idea, new thought to you, go back, listen to the messages again from uh, McGinnis from last year. Put these things together. This is not something that a lot of us have, have thought about, I've thought about, but we lack some of that background. So that's the that's another question I have is that that gr- having a background like most of us have where a lot of people don't teach Paul any differently than they or they don't teach narrative literature or poetry any differently than they do Romans, right. that how how do they go through getting that background? And, and developing that that understanding, that approach, that putting those glasses on to look at the scripture through its uh, genre. Yeah, yeah. So some some of those some of those authors, uh, Kevin Van Hooser, Drama of Doctrine, uh, is is a is a is a good book, uh, and he's essentially arguing again that what God's doing in Scripture is not just giving us a systematic theology. I think I think a lot. You know, for those of us who value theology, we kind of man, I wish God would have just given us a systematic theology. It would be a lot easier. But but no, he chose to give us literature because Scripture is doing something, not just saying something. It's, there's a drama there. So that's that's what he's kind of arguing in that book that's really valuable. So I, I would say um, uh, uh, re- read some of those authors. Uh, again, those those who approach the Psalms, for example, from this perspective, uh, Dr. Ross is one, Tremper Longman, they're not just they're not just saying okay what did the psalms say, they're all, they're getting at how do the psalms say it and therefore how can we communicate in a, in a similar way. So so there are authors out there that are doing some of that. In you know, a title for this book, so you can write it, is the aesthetics of theology. Yeah. Okay. Okay, we got Charlie back here. Uh, thanks, thanks, Scott. It was great, uh, great uh, pioneering work you've done here. Um, I was wondering if you could relate this whole issue of aesthetics to thinking in terms of how God has designed creation. 
seems the creator-creature distinction is so crucial. We are made in his image. And there is a similarity, deep similarity, between him and how he designs and builds things and how human beings, merely because we're made in his image, we, we have to, I mean, unintentionally we're reflecting something of his design. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, you know, there, there's, there's all kinds of uh, uh, opinions on what, what exactly does the image of God mean. You know, what does it mean that we're made in God image, God's image? But I think this, this ability to create and to communicate, not just through discursive propositions, but also through culture aesthetics, is at the core of what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, you know, so, so God, God communicated himself to his creation, right? And he does so through, through creation and through scripture. And in the same way, we do the same thing. Right, we we communicate through words, through propositions, but also through cultural aesthetic uh, uh, ways of communication as well. So this this is a great point. And again, we, we want to be analogous. We want to we want to be analogous to how God is doing things. We want to be faithful, not just in believing what God has said, but also in communicating that truth in ways that are fitting, that are similar to how God has communicated it. And so those are. Those are definite parallels. Yeah, absolutely. Good. Andy? Yeah. Um, this is kind of a goofy question just because I get asked it and I don't know how to answer it. But yeah. uh, Christian rap. Um, Well-intentioned probably. Absolutely. Where does it fit on your fittingness scale or how would you analyze that? Yeah. It, it, it's, it's, uh, Robbie yesterday mentioned uh, – the, uh, my, my blog and um, and some 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 comments. I, I've gotten into this this debate over Christian rap over the years, and some of the most intense uh, comments have come with this because there are people who are really really invested in in Christian rap, and I, I do believe it's it's well intentioned. I actually had an extended online debate with 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 a, a reformed rapper. I had some phone call conversations with him. He loves the Lord. He's trying to reach the, 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 you know, the, the culture and the people that he grew up with, and I really admire that. But there, I think there is where there's a weakness is a failure to recognize that it's not just what we say, but it's how we say it. And you actually listen to some of the lyrics of some of these, some of these uh, Christian raps, and they're, they're often pretty theologically dense. In fact, far more so... Than, than some than certainly like some of the trite praise and worship stuff or even some of the like 19th century gospel songs some of the reform rap stuff is like really rich justification by faith alone that kind of thing but again while I admire and and applaud what those lyrics say there is a there is a lack of attention given to how it is said it's like if I went home Thursday, and my wife said, how was the conference? And I said, it was fine. It was really great. I loved it. <laughs> okay. So, uh, yeah. What, what I would say is what those lyrics say, not in every case, but in a lot of cases of those, of those, uh, of those songs, is good. How it says it 
is not fitting to the content, in my opinion, based on how Scripture communicates those things. So that's that's where I would fall on that. Okay. Back, Greg. Okay, thank you, Scott. This is stretching me, but it's good stuff, and I really appreciate what you're touching on. Uh, my question is uh, in this idea of fittingness, as American culture drifts further and further away from a biblical worldview and things, and then we try to find these modal parallels uh, to communicate to a younger generation, it seems to me that there's an inevitable tipping point where all of a sudden we have accommodated a, a an anti-Christian sentiment in culture to try to... Um, try to rise to this, uh, to overcome this accusation that Christianity, as conservatives teach it, is no longer relevant right. to, to postmodern society. Could you touch on that a little bit? Yeah. No, that's, a, that's an excellent point. You know, I, think, I think we're, in terms of what we do inside the church and what's happening in the broader culture, I, I think we've, we've, we've already reached that point where we're not we're not going to be able to really find a lot of a lot of uh, usable stuff that's dominant in the culture, and it really depends on how strong there has been an influence of Christian values in the broader culture. For hundreds and hundreds of years in the West, Christianity was so influential, and even even um, maybe not you know, there were doctrinal issues, for instance, with Roman Catholicism during the Middle Ages. I'm going to talk about that a little later uh, today. But there were still sort of theocentric values that were very influential in the broader culture that influenced the cultural forms of the society. And so what was done in the church and what was done outside the church could be, could be really similar because there was a dominance of, of values in the broader culture consistent with, with Scripture. As the West moves further and further away from biblical values, that's going to be less and less uh, less and less possible, and I I believe personally we we just need to be willing to be faithful, even if it looks like we're out of date and we're not connected and we're not relevant. We're we 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 need to be faithful. Um, I think as much as possible we should we should you know we we can try to look and say okay what can we use and a lot of times in the folk culture there are uh, redeemable aspects that reflect values consistent with what we're trying to do, but you're right I mean. We're going to get to the point where you know we're, we're, that that gap is going to continue to grow, and I think if we're going to be faithful to Scripture, we just need to be willing to be a little odd. I think we need to we need to be willing to go back to what the first three centuries of the church experienced, or analogous what Babylon or what Christian what uh, Israel was experiencing in Babylon, rather than. Uh, Rather than looking at like the Middle Ages and Reformation when things were a lot more similar, no, we're we're getting to the point where there's not there's not going to be the ability to be that that similar anymore. Yeah. Uh, Doctor Annual, um, years ago we had Doctor uh, Robert Thomas uh, who wrote Evangelical Hermeneutics and talked about genre override in uh, apocalyptic, uh, where um, the tendency in evangelicalism is to downplay the details, the propositional content of prophetic literature. It's, you know, uh, the D. Brent Sandy, Plowshares, Pruning Hooks. It's big language. So it's like the genre and the, the aesthetics uh, are taken as the, 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 the only meaning because of speech act theory. That's all yeah. they're doing. Right. 
And so what you're, what you're appealing to, I think, is after we've said there is propositional content in, in, in the, the, the details of the prophetic statements, we have to further take care with the way it's packaged, but not let the packaging determine the, the kernel you were talking about. It's, that's the other side of this that might explain why someone like Walter Storff will say, you know, completely miss it on right. cultural application. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I agree with that. I, but it, the, the question is, what is the aesthetic form or the imagery doing? That, I think that's the difference. So an, exa- so an example of this is like with the temple. Uh, there are some who would say, well, the temple in Revelation can't be a literal temple because the temple was Jesus. You know? and, and actually, but I think it's actually a failure to recognize the imagery. Uh, the New Testament is not teaching, okay, the temple was Jesus, it's fulfilled, so there's not going to be a literal future temple. No. The, the Bible is using temple as a metaphor for Christ. The Bible uses the temple as a metaphor for the individual Christian. The Bible uses the temple as a metaphor for the church. And, by the way, there's going to be a literal temple in the millennium, right? So I think it's actually a failure in that case to recognize the imagery. To actually, what's ironic is actually it's... it's, it's uh, taking, in that case, the temple too literally in reference to Christ or the church and not recognize, okay, in that case, in that body of literature and the way that the discourse is working, temple is a metaphor in reference to Christ or in reference to the church. And then whereas in, 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 in Revelation, it's, it, it's not being used metaphorically there. So, so, so in other words, it's not a failure to recognize the aesthetic aspects or a ability to, it's also, okay, now what exactly is this image doing? And how do we know and how do we interpret rightly uh, the, the, this genre and this image being used in this genre? So so I, so I think falling off the, 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 the ledge on both sides leads, leads to theological errors, which again is why I think we need to, we need to be well versed in what the scripture is doing aesthetically. Yeah, good. Thank you very much, and I really appreciate the um, the ideas of making sure that we are sensitive to cultural responses within the scriptures, and not just um, interpret strictly like Doctor like we talked about before. However, I have I have a concern about when we're trying to communicate doctrine through various different aesthetics because aesthetics in our culture can be very subjective. What you find is offensive or almost like aggressive, other people don't. And and speaking from going from culture to culture, I grew up in Utah, Stepford Wives type of concept, going moving to Miami, and where personal space is oftentimes in, is infiltrated. I'm, I have no idea what to do with this. And having to learn how to, now in Kansas City, so I'm like right in the middle now. So it's like it's, you, you go through different culture shifts mm-hmm. and what is aggressive or what is offensive to me before is no longer offensive to me. Yep. And so oftentimes how we communicate, either in song or in poetry, it used to be offensive. Now I find it enjoyable. So how do we be able to, how can we determine what would be, uh, and I understand your fittingness concept, I do. Yep. But in certain aspects, like you talk about Christian rap, I find some, a lot of Christian rap very soothing and not aggressive, where I find sometimes a, um, 
the, a way a piano is played in, in, in churches can be kind of like, I don't find that appealing. Yeah. So how do we determine that aesthetic quality, um, or is it simply just the audience we're playing to? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, it's a huge question, but I'll, I'll try to give a, uh, an introduction to an answer and then tell you to go buy some books. Uh, no. So... Um, there, there are absolutely some aspects of fittingness, some aspects of aesthetic and cultural communication that is what I call conventional. It changes from person to person, from time to time, from situation to situation. So what you're describing is a, is a reality, right? Because it's, it's based on a personal experience or the way that I'm wired or, or where I live or you know, that kind of thing. Um, but there is also what I call natural communication because that, 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 that occurs that's rooted in absolutes, that's rooted in uh, common human biology, that's rooted in the created order. Both, both are always taking place. Um, I would say for Christians, so in other words, they're subjective and objective, right? For Christians, our goal should be to align the subjective with the objective. So we should, we should be willing to look at how we perceive things just because of our background, because of our culture, because of our experiences, and determine, okay, is how I'm perceiving things actually the way things really are? That's that realism rooted in the absolutes of God. Or is it just based on my own personal experiences? I think as much as possible, we want we want to align what what we perceive with what with what really is. Now that doesn't mean there's not room for variance. So it's like it's like with um, with taste in food. Like some people like hot food, some people don't don't like hot food, right? So there's some variance there, but there is a point at which it's too hot, like it's going to damage your mouth, right? And if I'm if I say, "Ooh, I love this," as 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 you know, boils are forming on my tongue. Okay, that's a problem. I need to match what I like with with the way things really are. And again, I don't I don't want to say there's only one, like black and white right way. There's there's variance within what is real, what is absolute. Um, so in that sense, within the category of what is absolutely true, good, and beautiful, there can be room for preference. There can be room for difference and subjectivity. But there's a line at which this is not really soothing or this is not really uh, a harsh. And I may perceive it to be harsh or I may perceive it to be, to be soothing, but I need to be humble enough, and I'm not, you know, I'm not thinking of any specific examples uh, at this point, I need to be humble enough to say maybe my perception is wrong. I may perceive that sound to be harsh. Is it really harsh? And this, so this is where I think affirming absolutes as a starting place is important. I'm affirming there are absolutes. Now the question is, is what I perceive, does it match with what is, what is truly real? Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use Caleb as an example here. Uh, one time I think I asked him to take out the trash or something, and he answered something like, okay, Dad. And, and I said, Caleb, that was disrespectful. And he asked a very perceptive question. He's a little too smart for his own good. He stopped and he said, Dad, how do you know that I'm disrespectful in my heart? 
He wasn't trying to be snarky. It was, a, it was a legitimate question. And my answer was, you know what? I don't. I don't know that for sure because I can't see your heart. But the way that you spoke was disrespectful. So if your heart's not disrespectful, then you need to change how you're speaking. And, and there, there, there's an analogy here with our perception of things. I might really perceive the curvy line to be restless. But is my, does my perception fit with what it really is? And again, I think and these are the kind of conversations we need to have as Christians. How can we match our perception, just because of our experiences and background, with the way things really are? Difficult, but I think we need to, we need to strive for it. Wait a minute, we're going to need to, our time's up. Uh, you said something about some books to read? Yeah, so, so my, my, first two, my first two books, Worship and Song and Sound Worship, but Worship and Song especially, gets into more of this like conventional versus natural, uh, you know, our perception, our subjective, which is really real, uh, you know, compared to, and, and specifically, with, specifically with music. So uh, I would, you know, those are, those are great books to kind of delve into to that a little more deeply. Okay, one, I'm going to make one quick comment. One of the things that seems to drive a lot of this is we, the desire to reach the unsaved. This relates to apologetic methodology. If you can get a hold of Charlie's old Framework 1 on giving an answer where he contrasts apologetic methodologies, presuppositionalism versus evidentialism and, and presuppositional rationalism, what happens often in apologetics is in talking to the unbeliever, your methodology assumes the veracity of their presuppositions. And then you, on the basis of validating their presuppositions, which are pagan human viewpoint, you try to win them over to your side. That doesn't work. That's an inherent contradiction. And that's what happens in, in this whole area of music. We're validating aesthetical forms that are built on human viewpoint presuppositions and thinking that somehow we can use that to bring people over to the truth. And that there's an inherent contradiction in that. So thank you, Scott, very much. Um, We're going to take a break now. We'll come back at, I think we come back at, um, at about 10 after, 15 after. We'll play, we'll have a video and then we're going to focus. Dr. Woods will come up and, uh, he'll be talking a little bit about some vital things with Chafer Seminary. So make sure you're here for that. <laughs>